The Devil Within, the hit true crime podcast, is back with a terrifying journey into the mind of a madman. In the 1970s, New York City had it all. Hip-hop, punk rock, and the son of Sam. The Devil Within, a season in hell, is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Duke's Mail. Do you get it? Because only the ones that get it really get it. Your friends get it. Your mom gets it. Your grandma gets it. Your neighbors get it. Sometimes a dog gets it. Get out of there. What else? Uh, your potato salads get it. BLTs get it. Tailgates get it. And restaurants get it too. By now, even you probably get it. So get it today. Made without any sugar since 1917, Dukes is that little southern something that makes good things better. Get Dukes. It's got twang. This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners. So please practice personal discretion. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. Resources for this episode are going to be in the show notes. So check those out if you're interested. This week, we are going to be talking about the murder of Cassie Jo Stoddart. Here we go. All right. Cassie Jo Stoddart was born September 21st, 1990. She was from Pocatello, Idaho. And I believe she was pretty much kind of born and raised there in that general area as well. Mm -hmm. She was pretty much a normal teenage girl. She liked drawing. She liked music. You know, exactly what you would think of when you think of a, a teenage girl. Unfortunately, her life, since we're talking about it on this podcast, has a pretty tragic ending. And I have said this for a few cases. Um, they're all pretty much the stuff of nightmares. But this one really is one of those situations of like your worst fear or the thing you see in horror movies. But in real life, yeah. In real life, exactly. Cassie's story takes place in September of 2006. On September 22nd, Cassie was dropped off at her aunt's house. Cassie was getting dropped off by her mom at this aunt's house so that she could watch over the house and take care of her aunt and uncle's three cats and their two dogs. So essentially, she was going to be alone in this house. Yeah. It's my understanding from the documentary I watched that this house wasn't that far from where Cassie's house that she lived in with her parents was. So I want to say it was about 15 minutes or so from what I'm remembering mm -hmm. and forgot to write down. It's my understanding from the documentary I watched. It's called... Your Worst Nightmare, and the episode is called When the Lights Go Out from ID Discovery. And that documentary, I believe, mentioned it's about 15 minutes away from where Cassie lived with her parents. So not that far. Essentially, her mom 
thought she was just dropping her off and that on Sunday she would go and get Cassie. And Cassie was pretty responsible. And the aunt was pretty trustworthy, too. It's not like it was some strange situation. Like, this is a house that they knew well and right. was local and that and kind of And she's stuff. 16 years old. How many 16-year-olds are babysitting and uh, house-sitting, pet-sitting? It's pretty common at that age. Exactly. It is pretty common. It, it might sound a little freaky to some of us because— We kind of know in hindsight that something terrible happens, but at the end of the day, we really can't be blaming anybody for anything because it is completely normal, especially in 2006. And like you mentioned, she was 16 and she was about three months away, almost exactly to the day, to turning 17. So it's really, she's a junior in high school. Mm -hmm. She's responsible. It wasn't supposed to be a big problem. This house was. A little older, I guess, to the area. It was seen to be a little bit bigger, kind of creaky. It was in a little bit more of a rural area, too. Like I mentioned, about 15 minutes from Cassie's home in Pocatello, which is a little bit more well-built up, if you will. Mm -hmm. It's considered like a northeast area of Bannock County. And this house was on a street called Whispering Cliffs Drive. So it's a bit like the boonies, I guess is what I would like to say to them. I've Google Earthed it. I'm not from the area. I don't know it well. So I couldn't really make that much of an assertion just from Google Earthing Mm -hmm. like a creep. I can tell you, though, that according to an article about the house in 2014, post-murder, it... It sits on two acres, and those acres include fenced pastures as well. So that gives you an idea that this isn't the type of house that's going to be really right butting up next to a neighbor. Right. And so we're thinking if anyone's there, they're supposed to be there. Because at two acres, it's a pretty big plot of land. Right. Right. Not the biggest in the entire world. No, but big enough. Big enough. One of the cabins we used to stay at when I was growing up with, like, all my cousins and my aunts and uncles and everybody would come. And it was this huge house up in, like, Arrowhead. And it sat on three acres. So, for me, I have a little bit of an idea. And it's like, look, guys, some of them are probably, like, laughing at us. Like, how do you not know what two acres looks like, like, in your head? And it's like. We live in California. (laughs) Yeah, we live in California. We don't live on acres. We live on, like, a quarter acre. It's, like, huge. Like, are you kidding? So, we don't really know what that looks like, but judging from that experience of that house in Lake Arrowhead and how huge that property was, it's huge, but you could make it to a neighbor's house like on Halloween, but it's still like it's few and far between. Like these houses weren't right up next to each other. It looks like it's situated in what's a neighborhood, though, as was this house in Lake Arrowhead. You're not going to look next door and see in the other person's room. Right, but you might see their rooftop in the distance. And it's a little bit of what I might say is the maybe the best of both worlds when you're thinking about, like, um, suburban life, country life. Like, Mm -hmm. they're kind of mixing the two a little bit there. I don't know. I'm not an expert, and I'm on a tangent. So let's move on and kind of get to what's going on for Cassie there. So the documentary mentions her getting dropped off. It's later afternoon, early evening, Let's call it 4 or 5 p.m. I don't have the exact time, although I'm sure it's available somewhere if anyone's interested. So shortly after she gets dropped off, around 6 p.m., her boyfriend, Matt, arrives. 
They'd known each other for a while, and they'd been dating for several months. They went to the same high school. Mm -hmm. They're having a grand old time, like any high school romance. He was known by her family, so he wasn't like any kind of secret boyfriend or anything like that. He was getting well integrated into her life. And her family felt as though he was a good kid and that he treated her pretty well. So nobody had any qualms when they knew he was going to be there that night. And that just shows you that Cassie was that responsible too, that she checked with her aunt and her mom to make sure that that was going to be something that was okay. You know, I'm home alone. Right. It's, she wasn't sneaking him in. Right. And this is a Friday night. Remember, her aunt's coming back Sunday. She's house-sitting for the weekend. This is Friday night. And everything was cleared. She's going to enjoy her night with her boyfriend. And he was the only one that was allowed and supposed to be at the house. And he did, indeed, show up at 6 p.m. and enjoy the evening with her. Two of Matt's friends later on, however, arrive at the house. Of course. Cassie had no idea that they were invited. She didn't do it. And I'm not sure how much of an invitation these two guys received from Matt either. That hasn't really been expressed in what's available to us as the public. Mm -hmm. But it seems as though these two guys, Brian Draper and Tori Adamschick arrived thinking that there was going to be a little bit of a party going on. They arrived and nobody but Cassie and Matt were there, obviously. And Cassie was like, we're not inviting people over. Nobody else is coming over. They're not even supposed to be here. This is not cool. But she didn't kick them out. She knew these guys. They were friends of hers, too, in a way. Kind of mm -hmm. like that thing of where it's your boyfriend's friends and they kind of become your friends. It was right. a little bit of that. But she wasn't super close with them. But she also grew up going to the same schools as them. Brian moved to Idaho from Utah later on in his childhood. And he met Tori, and they were super close. Like, they were, like, best friends, mm -hmm. hence why they're arriving together. But, again, for the most part, they're growing up together in Idaho, minus Brian kind of being born more raised in Utah before moving to Idaho. So they all know each other. They see each other every day. It's not weird. So she kind of just like, whatever. And they all start watching a movie together. The movie, according to Wikipedia, which we can trust with a grain of salt, of course, was Kill Bill Volume 2. I support that choice, 100%. <laughs> I love Quentin Tarantino. I'm not even a huge, like, horror or action type fan, but Quentin kind of seems how to put some of those things together and really kind of, like, made his own genre. Like, I swear. So, love him. Support that choice. Everyone loves TV Dad. On the next TV Dad, presented by Progressive, TV Dad meets the prom date. So you're here to take my daughter out, huh? Uh, yes, yes, sir. Now, I'm only going to say this once. Drivers who switch and save with Progressive could save hundreds. Ooh. Oh, I, I thought you were going to say take care of my little girl or something. <laughs> She's a kickboxer. She could take care of herself. Listen to your TV Dad. Drivers who switch and save with Progressive could save hundreds. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Potential savings will vary. 
Imagine a vacation waiting outside your door when you get home. Discover a new way to escape the stress of everyday life. Picture soothing jets massaging your back, relieving all your aches and pains. Sleep soundly without medications or supplements. Call 1-877-861-4672 to get $1,250 in instant savings, including free delivery. Call 877-861-4672 now or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. Around 9.30, Brian and Tori are getting a little restless. They're getting a little bored. So they tell Cassie and Matt, you know what? We're going to head out. We don't really want to watch this movie. We're going to go to the theater because we've just found out that this particular movie is playing. In the documentary, they talk about it being Slayer 4. I don't know if that's a real movie, one they made up for the documentary, but thought I'd include that info there. Matt and Cassie say bye to Tori and Brian, letting them go off to their movie theater adventure. And Matt and Cassie decide that they're going to stay at the aunt's house and watch the movie. They're sitting there, they're enjoying the movie, and the lights go out. Oh, ah, yeah. In an older, creaky house that's sitting kind of, you know, separated from other pieces of humanity. You might not even see your neighbor's lights in the window too easily, right? Like, it's on two acres. Well, and it's just... That would freak you out. Yeah, like you said, it's not your house. You're babysitting or pet sitting. And when something like that happens and you're not in the comfort of your own home, you're already a little on edge. Right. So I'm sure that at that time, Cassie was super happy that Matt was still there. Right. And I should say that not just the lights went out. The power in the house went out, and Matt noticed that one of the dogs kept staring down the basement stairs. Nope, nope. So for us California people, Natalie, as you know, your house is built up on foundation. You could still have a front door, but below you is a basement, and you're going to have stairs down to it. And you might have windows and an entrance actually down there in your basement area too. Mm -hmm. So it's a big area. It's dark. And that would be incredibly scary when one of the dogs is just barking and growling and staring at that door. Matt probably wasn't too stoked at this either. You know, I mean, this is some scary crap going on. Lights are out and dogs are growling, barking. So he calls his mom and he just says, you know, look, power went out for a little bit. It was kind of freaky. Can I stay here with Cassie? Uh, she's a little freaked out and so am I. And I think we'll both feel easier about it if I stay here. Rightfully so, the mom's like, no, dude, you're 16. You're not spending the night with your with your girlfriend. Right. And you would think, like, this isn't an area where right now there's a bunch of active violent crime or anything like that. So the mom's probably thinking either they're making something up or it was just a weird fluke wiring in this older house. Like, And, and she doesn't completely dismiss them, right? Like, she does offer... Cassie to stay at their house. Yes. I thought that that was pretty cool of the mom, too. Mm -hmm. So she must have picked up on the freaky situation or how both of them were feeling at this whole thing. And this just goes back to Cassie's responsibility. She says no thank you to staying over at Matt's house. Now, I personally 
I would be getting the hell out of there. Same, same. <laughs> and and I have to say, it's not just from hindsight of this case. I don't play those games. Like, I've seen enough horror movies and I know enough true crime stories. I'd be out of there. Of course, I'm not saying that in blaming Cassie. I'm actually commending her responsibility to these animals who would have easily been fine having been checked on by her and left alone for the night. But right, she didn't want anything to happen, I'm sure, for her aunt. Like a dog rip up a couch cushion or you know she didn't want anything to happen and so his mom did say as you mentioned she can stay here though and i'll take her back in the morning so it really would have just been a little bit of time too because it's starting to get later by this point brian and tori left around 9 30 p.m so it is starting to tick a little bit lower because they stayed and watched the movie and so it's getting a little bit later matt and cassie sort of shrug it off after that phone call. And around 10.30, Cassie says goodbye to Matt as his mom picks him up. And he is on his way to his house. And she is left in that big creaky house where the lights and power just went out by herself. As she's left to her own devices... Cassie decides to settle in for the evening and maybe even presumably falls asleep and wakes up to lights flickering on, off, on, off. And obviously it would have totally been freaking her out at this point because her boyfriend just left not long before this and she's either trying to fall asleep or did fall asleep, you know, in this front room couch area most likely. And it's just absolutely uh, frightening, especially if you're going to be watching a movie like Kill Bill where it's going to get you... I mean, I know it's not about murderers or anything, but those types of movies can get you on edge. Like, it's not going to be a peaceful, like, Hallmark movie. (laughs) And the fact that the lights are going on and off seems really intentional rather than, oh, the power went out again, it'll turn on in in a minute. No, it, it sounds like someone's intentionally turning them on and off in order to get a rise or um, freak you out. Exactly. So my thoughts are that it's at this point where she probably is starting to realize, oh shit, I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. Someone is in here. Someone is messing with me. Assuming that the control panel is down there in the basement. If a 16-year-old understands how that even works, right? Right. So let's even put it into that context. Maybe she's a 16-year-old girl that, you know, hasn't, you know, learned about these things, not being a homeowner or whatever at this time in her life, that there's a control panel that controls different parts of the electricity in your house. And so she really might have even gotten even more freaked out because you don't know if there is somebody where they could possibly be doing that. You you might think they're out there cutting a wire. or You have no idea if you don't know. I'm assuming a 16-year-old girl wouldn't because I didn't when I was 16. So maybe that's egotistical. But I mean, even just at our age right now, I know that you can go restart the power at the electrical panel. But if this happened to me at night, I probably would just leave it until the morning. When you're in that sort of flight or fight mode, your brain might not even be thinking about that control panel and how right. it would work. So I say all this to really just kind of hone in on like, what she would have been experiencing and how she would have been feeling at this time. Not even a lot of knowledge to process what the heck was happening to her, but feeling really scared. And that is 
so scary and sad. I also want to add on to that how nowadays people say that there's a third element. It's not just flight or fright. It's flight, fright, or freeze. And maybe she froze because she encountered a situation she didn't know how to handle at 16 years old. Like, what do you do when you realize the lights are turning on and off and it is probably being done intentionally? She could have just frozen out of fear. Yeah, and you're out there in the boonies and who knows what kind of 2006 flip phone would have been working. That would just all add to the fight, flight, or freeze aspect that she would have been going through. So let's fast forward to Sunday. Cassie's aunt and her surrounding family, her husband and her daughter, Cassie's cousin, arrive home right around when they said they would, which is earlier in the day on Sunday. Her cousin enters the home, presumably ahead of her parents, if we're talking about how the documentary was depicted, and finds a gruesome scene. In the front room of their home, Cassie had been murdered. In fact, she had been stabbed to death. Horrible. In the meantime, Cassie's mom is arriving to pick up her daughter and essentially is, you know, walking into this crime scene. And I don't know the timing between law enforcement getting involved and Cassie's mom arriving or anything like that. I'm I'm unaware. But we do know that she arrives at an active crime scene. So we we don't know how long afterward Cassie's mom got there, but she does arrive after the police have already been there. It, it, that's what it seems like in the documentary. And a lot of times they sort of depict these things without saying them. So I don't want to claim too much, but yeah, that is what it looks like. She's walking in to this crime scene being manned by law enforcement depicted in the documentary. So take that with a grain of salt, but she's walking into a really shitty situation. and Every mom's worst nightmare. Absolutely. And they have a documentary from MSNBC called In the Coldest Blood, but I could not get access to it. So listeners, if you can get access to this documentary, please email it to us at themurderdiariespod at gmail.com. Cassie's mom, Anna, is involved in this documentary, and it is a perspective that I was really dying to have, and I was so bummed that I couldn't get it. And I was actually, like, late to recording because I was still trying to get access so I could at least link it in the show notes if I did find it and watch it myself later, but I cannot find it. So if you've got it, link it to us, and we'll also throw it in the show notes for everybody else. But um, there's that. So we don't totally have her mom's perspective, unfortunately, from this documentary, just her sister's. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. So let's kind of reset here the scene. Her mom's arriving. Everyone is realizing that Cassie has been murdered. So something that I wanted to just get a little bit of your perspective on and that wasn't really spoken about in any of the resources is this happened on a Friday night. 
Mm-hmm. The aunt and her family find Cassie murdered early Sunday. Yeah, that's a, there's a whole day. What was happening on Saturday when nobody was in contact with her? She was 16 years old. If I had a 16-year-old daughter staying at a house that wasn't super-duper far away and I couldn't get a hold of her, I might have been a little bit spooked out and, and gone down there. And that's not to blame them. It's just making me wonder, like, I'm wondering about Saturday and how many phone calls, texts, or whatever. Right. Well, I mean, even Matt, because he knew that she was afraid the night before. You think that he would have called or texted, and, you know, this is a time when you were charged per text, but he could have sent one that said, hey, how did you sleep? How are you feeling this morning? Yes. Can I come over today, keep you company? So, yeah, that is really unusual that no one contacted her that we know of. Right. And I'm sure that there were people trying to get a hold of her. It's just interesting to me that wouldn't Matt even just roll over there? Like, I don't know. It must have been a really big mix of kind of coincidences and things that ended up with nobody going over there on Saturday. It just had to be because it wasn't about nobody caring about her or, you know, time to blame the parents because they didn't care. It's This is not that situation, you know? Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that she was stabbed multiple times. That sounds really, whenever we hear that someone was murdered that way, we think of it as being really personal. Mm-hmm. What What else was left at the crime scene that indicated if it was personal, if it was random? Like, what did police find? Right. So let's kind of talk about this scene. Let's remember, there wasn't a lot for anybody to see. But when law enforcement is on the scene and laying eyes on what happened, they view it personal right away because there were no high-ticket items missing. Ding, ding, ding. There was ding, ding, ding. High-ticket jewelry was still there. We're talking 2006. DVD player was still there. Nothing like that was stolen. No TVs, which TVs were really expensive in 2006. You've got plasma on the scene. Who knows what kind they had? I'm just mentioning it because this was all indicative to law enforcement that this was personal. First place that law enforcement really started once they kind of were like, okay, this is personal, was Matt. Rightfully so. We got to start with the dude, even if you're not married, and I don't blame them for it. And also, you want to start with the last person to see her alive. So all of those put together lead authorities to checking in with Matt. They notate a pretty large lack of emotion, which was jarring enough to them to really try and dig as much as they could, but... Everything he was saying kept checking out. And he did mention about his friends, Brian and Tori, being at the house that night. So, of course, they move on to talk to them. And just in Matt's defense, look at Molly Bish's boyfriend in in the case we recently covered. They hadn't been going out that long, and he didn't really have that much of an emotional reaction as well. And maybe it's just the age that these guys are. Maybe it's because, you know, it is a newer relationship. 
It, it could be a lot of things, not just guilt. I agree. I agree. I do want to kind of remind that with Molly Bish, if you haven't listened to that episode, go check it out. When we're talking about Molly Bish, we were really only talking about like two months. Right. When we're talking about Matt and Cassie, it is much longer. Like we're probably working on a year here. Okay. At this point. that That's what it was made to seem like. Like maybe not over a year yet, but several, several months. So maybe six, seven, nine months. But still great point in that sometimes it's the whole boys don't cry kind of thing, right? And we're talking about Idaho. This is like a red state where, you know, that kind of idea is there. And and this is totally overgeneralizing. So look, you may live in Idaho and not vote red and have a boyfriend that cries with you. Amazing, totally overgeneralizing. We want to just state that. But these are all just things we're, we're throwing out and kind of likening to why he might have had a lack of emotion. 100%. And, and with being the same age as Cassie, if I'm remembering correctly, so I believe he was a junior in high school as well, teenagers don't understand finality. So the idea of hearing your girlfriend is dead is going to take so much longer to process, to set in. Right. And he also had a lot of other things to process. Like, hi, I left my girlfriend on Friday night very much alive. We had something spooky happen to us and she was fucking stabbed. So a lack of emotion? Eh, I don't know. And maybe he is more introverted where he processes inwardly. So just because it wasn't outwardly like people who prefer extroversion would. He could have gone home and cried in his pillow. We don't know. We have no idea. I just wanted to point out that just because the police saw a lack of emotion and didn't mean that he was guilty. All right, so they talked to Matt, and they were pretty set on him being truthful. I'm assuming he mentioned that Tori and Brian had also been at the house. Right. So because he seemed pretty truthful, they decided that checking into Tori and Brian would probably be a pretty good idea. Tori and Brian stuck with their story that they watched the movie at the house with Matt and Cassie, but left before the movie was even over around 930-ish and went to a movie theater to go watch a different movie. They were kind of known to be big movie buffs, so this also wasn't really weird in their character to you know, go watch multiple movies in one night or be bored or judgmental about one movie and move on to a different thing, you know, that kind of thing. Without any suspects, though, after talking to Matt and to Tori and to Brian, the three guys that were with her that night, and no suspects kind of coming up from any other types of leads, and there was no violent crimes recently in the area, according to law enforcement, there was nothing indicating Who could have done this to her? So law enforcement starts over again. And I feel like this is common, right? You're going to be rechecking stories. You're going to be checking back in. What's their behavior? What did they do? You know, what's changed in their life? What is different? So they take another gander at Matt, Tori, and Brian. Matt's story still stuck. The lack of emotion was still withstanding and still very concerning to them, however. So they decide, you know what? 
let's wrap the smack guy up. You know, he's most likely telling the truth, but this is off-putting and we can't let that go. Let, let's do a polygraph. And the main idea of the polygraph, which is interesting to me because you and I talk about the, the pseudoscience of right. polygraph on this podcast all the time. Yes, it's helped in certain situations and, and it has real indicators. It's from science. There, there, there's a science to it in a way, but it still is not a hundred percent what it's supposed to be. So it's interesting that they indicate in the documentary they're doing this polygraph to amp up the pressure. Right. So if someone's going to confess, they're going to confess while they're doing a polygraph because they think the polygraph is actually going to do it. Now, can polygraph measure things? Yes, it does. But it's more of a mental game. They're they're putting the pressure on the guys and going to see if being asked these questions while hooked up to something is going to make them crack. Exactly. So not only could they benefit from the things that polygraph tests do indicate and show, they wanted to see if they could poke some holes in his stories. They really wanted to try and trip him up and get some inconsistencies. But they couldn't. He passed a polygraph. They couldn't poke any holes in his story. They found no inconsistencies. They took him off the suspect list at that time. He's done. And they moved on to Tori and Brian, the other two guys that they had to go off of at this time, right? When they're talking to them, one of the things they wanted to check in on was something as simple as, describe the movie you saw, right? They're movie buffs, movie addicts. Describe it. What what was the plot? Who was in it? You know, they're asking them these types of questions about their night. Like, oh, you went to the theater. Right. Did you see the movie or not? Exactly. Some of the inconsistencies or problematic indicators that they were getting at this point led law enforcement to believe that Tori and Brian were never actually at the movie theater or even watching another movie. So they go to the movie theater and they confirm with the ticket seller that Tori and Brian were definitely not at that theater on Friday night. And the girl at the ticket counter was actually a high school classmate of theirs. So she knew who they were and was able to say, you know, they weren't there. What the documentary was expressing is that this ticket holder at the theater gave them a very clear answer of no. And I would know if they were here. So now we know that more than likely they were lying about going to the movies. And it makes us wonder... Where were they instead? Because they weren't at home. And why would they be lying? Right. Did they partake in some kind of delinquent activity they didn't want to admit to to the cops? You know, like maybe they went to a field and like smoked some weed and they didn't want to tell the cop because weed is and was illegal in Idaho. Right. So they get like, oh, freaked out. Like, oh, no, you know. So they decide to just lie and say they were at a movie. It's actually decent that the cops gave them that benefit of the doubt, right? And the cops Mm -hmm. in the documentary were alluding to them making sure of that and taking care to set it on their to-do list to check in on that. I give a lot of credit to these cops in this case because you don't always hear of cops who are, I mean, they, they definitely sound like they're very thorough and they're not going to be 
following their gut. They're following the evidence. Yes. And I appreciate that. I do too, much to the point of where they're not just writing these teenage boys off sort of, oh, they just, they didn't do anything, but also not assuming anything at the same time. Like they just say, followed the evidence. I like the way you said that. In following said evidence, they invite Brian Draper in to take a polygraph test, just like Matt did. And this is on September 27th. So this is just five days after the murder. Things are going quick here, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Well, when he arrives for the polygraph test, he is crying and admits that he did indeed go back to Cassie's aunt's house, and he didn't go back alone. He, Brian, went back to Cassie's aunt's house with Tori, with the idea that they were going to prank her, that they were going to kind of spook her out while she's home alone, right, in this big, scary house. That also leads me to think that maybe she did express some fear in staying there alone that night, even when those guys were there. Like, oh, come on, guys, I don't want to watch that movie. Like, maybe when they were picking a movie. Oh, come on, guys, I don't want to watch that movie. I got to stay here alone tonight. You know, like, she may have expressed some of that. Well, and it also makes you think... These aren't her close friends. They're her boyfriend's close friends. So it's odd that they would want to do something like that because I doubt that she would find it very funny afterward. You know what I mean? Because these aren't people that she's buddy-buddy with. Exactly. So Brian continues his little crying story and says that while they were attempting to do this prank— that Tori went a bit crazy and said he was going to kill Cassie. And that then he did kill Cassie or at least start to stab her and then asks Brian to help finish her off. Brian then leads law enforcement to the spot in Black Rock Canyon where they had buried the knives and the masks and the clothing that they wore during the murder. And when I speak to these masks, they were wearing masks that have been undescribed, but it is to the effect and the idea of the scream masks. I've totally been getting, been getting scream vibes from this. Just the, the girl home alone or, you know, house sitting, getting these little tricks played on her to scare her or get her anxiety up and then to meet an end like this i mean it it's so juvenile but it also um if their sole intention was to scare her they wouldn't have needed masks and they wouldn't have needed knives but they obviously had some pre-planning going on because they made sure to have a disguise they made sure to have different clothing they brought their own you know weapon weapons the knives yeah and these are like slightly undescribed knives as well, but they were like daggery kind of knives. They weren't like uh, just a kitchen knife. Not that that makes it better, but it just shows you like, it shows you they really did want to scare her. They just also maybe murdered her too. So let's find out what the heck happens with, with Brian and Tori. The biggest thing, let's go back to how they were finding this stuff, right? Brian led them to where they buried the masks, the knives, and other items in Black Rock Canyon. There was 
a tape there that law enforcement was now able to watch. On the tape, in a recording from September 21st, 2006, Tori and Brian were discussing their plan to murder Cassie because basically they only, they know she's going to be alone. Oh, that's sick. We're going down in history is a quote from this tape. And they also kind of go on to talk about serial killers like Ted Bundy being amateurs compared to what they're going to be doing. And so that lets you know, too, that it wasn't just Cassie they're talking about. They're talking about murdering multiple people. Right. So they see this as their first act of many. Yes. On 9-22, which again is a Friday and the Friday that Cassie was murdered, they have a recording on the tape, which looks like they're at school. And upon further investigation, they were known to record at school. They were recording themselves all the time. Like, they just, like, got off on this whole, like, let's record everything all the time. And and if you if you think about it, in 2006, to paint the picture and remind the people, this is probably, like, a, hand, a camcorder. It is a camcorder. Because um, you couldn't even fit that much storage on like your digital camera so one of the boys i forget which one was known to carry around his sony camcorder Mm -hmm. and bring it everywhere including school so that is presumably what this tape was recorded on and they often recorded um at school and would tell teachers like oh yeah we're just talking about the horror movie we're making like no big deal It's all good. When they'd be talking Mm -hmm. about the murders that they wanted to, what do you say, do? Yeah, they wanted to perform. Perform? Yeah, it was insane. So on this tape, on 9-22, again, the same day Cassie was murdered, Friday, looking like they're at school, they say something to the effect of they had tried to kill nine or ten times And that a parent comes home or they're not alone like they thought that the person would be. And more of a quote is, we hope you don't have to go through failure like we did. And then then the other guy, I believe Brian at this time, is like, yeah, we tried like nine or ten times, but then their parents were home and they weren't alone. And so they're basically like talking about these attempts that they were going to possibly murder somebody and um it almost seems like they're leaving this legacy for future murderers like i don't know where they thought this video was gonna go but like a how to kill instructional manual yes law enforcement talks about these videos as brian and tori wanting to have someone find it and go, oh, wow, look what they did. Like, holy crap, or like shock value. But when I hear that sentence, I'm thinking they even had bigger things that they thought were going to come out of it, like future murderers. I'm getting Columbine vibes from these guys. Yes, they were definitely influenced by Eric and Dylan, as well as the Scream movies. And thinking about these videos, we're talking about recordings from the 21st, and the 22nd. They also were recording right after she was murdered, too. So we've got the buildup of her murder and 
directly after the murder. Do we have the murder, though? We do not have the murder recorded. Law enforcement that was in the documentary said something like it made it even worse for them Mm -hmm. because you almost have to, like, piece it together yourself, which is interesting to hear law enforcement say. Like, when they piece it together themselves, it felt worse than probably having seen the murder recorded to them. I thought that was really interesting because if you think about it, law enforcement does see a lot of gruesome scenes. So for them, it's almost just more black and white, more factual maybe when they're physically seeing it. But they had to get into that space of where they had to piece together what happened to Cassie that night from these videos. Now, I have some audio from these videos. It's about a minute and a half or so, and it's a combination of the 21st and then the 22nd before and after the murder. There's a lot more that's out there, but in being part of the public, I didn't have a lot of access to that. Most of this film is in the 1994 Geo that Tori drove and Brian is typically filming. So we're going to play that here and we're going to come back to you. There should be no law against killing people. I know it's a wrong thing, but hell, hell, you restrict somebody from it, they're going to want it more. We found our victim and sad as it may be, she's our friend. But you know what? We all have to make sacrifices. Our first victim is going to be Cassie's daughter. She's going to be alone in a big, dark house out in the middle of nowhere. How perfect can you get? I, I mean, like, holy shit, dude. I'm horny just thinking about it. Hell yeah. I was 9.50, September 22nd, 2006. We know there's lots of doors. There, there's lots of places to hide. I locked the back doors. That's all locked. Now we just gotta wait. I just killed Cassie. We just left her house. This is not a fucking joke. I'm shaking. I stabbed her in the throat and I saw her lifeless body just disappear. Dude, I just killed Cassie. Oh, oh, fuck. That felt like fucking real. I mean, it went by so fast. Shut the fuck up. We gotta get our act straight. Okay. I just showed the video to Natalie that the audio that you just heard came from. Thoughts? You have a strong reaction, and I literally made Natalie stop talking so we could save it for a recording. I, I'm speechless, first of all. Um, on our podcast, we talk a lot about how teenagers don't understand the finality of death. And truly, this is one of the most obvious examples that I've seen. Because we have audio from the prior to the murder, and they're talking about it, and they're excited, and they're planning it, but it, it feels so juvenile. They're, they're almost not even talking about her as a real person. It's, they've built up this idea of murder, and they're glamorizing it. And then the video footage afterward is really... It has a little bit of a chaotic nature to it, 
a chaotic energy. But it, it after the murder, after the murder, and it also feels. Uh, he even says, "I'm not sure which guy says it, but it doesn't even feel real." Brian, yeah, Brian. It it doesn't even feel real, and that struck me like they're so amped up on adrenaline. They just committed this murder. And one of them repeats, I killed her. I killed Cassie. And he's like saying it to himself multiple times in an, a, like in a, a way to make himself believe that it happened. And I'm not, I'm in no way saying what they did was, you know, I'm not excusing them, but it just shows how young they are. Yeah, and how, how stupid they, they were thinking that they were going to pull this off and that it was okay. And just yeah, the whole idea was ridiculous. It literally put a lump in my throat just watching that. Like, yeah, I, I don't even want to give them any more attention, honestly, in me talking about it because it's so sick and disgusting. And yes, I don't know. It It hurts my heart for Cassie and her family, but... It just really evident uh, is evidence of them not having their brains fully developed and being pure evil. I don't know. I, I, I everything I'm saying doesn't really feel like it can encompass all the emotions I have after watching that video. Absolutely, and I have seen additional footage as well in the documentary. So if you are interested in the video, it is linked in the show notes as well as the name of the documentary one more time is Your Worst Nightmare When the Lights Go Out on ID Discovery. So Your Worst Nightmare is the show. When the Lights Go Out is the name of the episode. It is pretty harrowing to watch any of their videos, so we don't want to give it too much more attention in terms of this episode. Right. So let's kind of get back to the Cassie perspective and talk about what exactly they did that night. According to court transcripts, a YouTube video by 85 Grave that is also linked in the show notes and Wikipedia, this is what happened on the night of September 22nd, 2006. Cassie was unaware that before the boys left, Brian and Tori, that they had unlocked the basement door so that they could get back into the house undetected. So the basement had an entrance door down below, and they were able to get back in undetected. Sometime after leaving the house around 9.30, when they said they were going to go to the theater, Brian and Tori returned to the neighborhood and parked down the street. They got out of the car, they put their little murder costumes on, and... What what did the costumes consist of? So we know they wore a mask, but what else were they wearing? Right, and I say costume like it's cute. I'm saying it in an irritated, facetious way. Their costumes consisted of dark clothing, gloves, and white masks. So I'm picturing sort of like a hockey mask type thing, some kind of creepy white mask. They quietly entered the house through that unlocked basement door while Matt and Cassie were still watching TV in the living room. They intentionally made some loud noises, hence the dog barking, growling. They made those loud noises to lure Matt and Cassie downstairs, which in this case, downstairs means down the stairs to the basement so that they could scare them. 
but it makes me wonder if Matt had ended up staying the night or if Matt and Cassie had gone down the stairs, if they would have attacked both of them. It made me wonder too, because Matt was their friend. So if- But they even said in the audio that you, and video you showed me that Cassie's our friend, but someone's got to die or something along those lines. We all make sacrifices. Right. Yeah. Right. So it makes me feel like they may not have cared or maybe it would have just been- a deeper exercise for them. Because like they had mentioned in the video that unfortunately wasn't part of the clip we have here, but it was part of the clips in the documentary that they had tried like nine or 10 times. So I'm wondering if this could have just been an escalation piece had Matt been there as well. So it's kind of a toss up and I'm very curious at a selfish note about that too. And I guess we'll never know because... As we know, Matt left when his mom came and got him. But as we know, right before his mom came to get him, the power had gone out. So Matt and Tori found, while trying to lure them downstairs, which again didn't happen, they found that circuit breaker. So that's when they played with the circuit breaker and turned the power in the house off. Still hoping that the pair would come down to check the breaker. So again, that also makes me wonder if they were prepared to murder her Maybe they would have just murdered him, too. When Matt and Cassie didn't come downstairs, Brian and Tori just turned the lights back on. As we know, they came back on. From the basement, Brian and Tori were able to hear when Matt left. They turned out the lights again at the circuit breaker and waited. They again hoped that Cassie would come downstairs, but she didn't. Since she didn't go downstairs... Tori and Brian decided that they would go upstairs. Brian was armed with a dagger-type weapon, and Tori had a hunting-style knife. Brian opened and slammed a closet door at the top of the stairs in hopes to scare Cassie, who was lying on the couch in the living room. Again, as I said, when Matt left, she just kind of settled in for the rest of the evening. The boys then brutally attacked her, stabbing Cassie approximately 30 times. 12 of those wounds were potentially fatal. So they stabbed her 12 times over the amount of fatal wounds that would have been needed to kill her. It was overkill. Absolutely. And at the trial, the prosecution revealed that Draper did, I guess I'll say confess, that he was inspired by Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold from the Columbine Massacre. So we'll leave it there about Eric and Dylan and Columbine, but I just wanted you to know that you were definitely right and that it did actually come up in court. On April 17th, 2007, Brian Draper was found guilty of first-degree murder, and Tori Adamschick's trial started May 31st, 2007, with a conviction on June 8th, 2007. Fast forward to August 21st, 2007, because they were both convicted of first-degree murder, they each received a mandatory life sentence without the possibility of parole. Thank God. You love to see it. You love to see it. They also received 30 years to life on top of that because they were, in addition, convicted of conspiracy to commit murder because of all 
the videotapes, is my guess. Adam Schick and Draper are both serving their time in the Idaho State Correctional Institution. Of course, in November of 2019, Tori Adam Schick had his sentence upheld, luckily, after he attempted to appeal. So they're staying in there. They're rotting. You love to see it. In 2010, the Stoddard family actually filed a civil suit as well with the school district because they're like, hello, how did nobody see this? This was negligent. Like, these boys were dangerous and our daughter died because of it. And it could have been avoided. These kids were talking about murder on a daily basis, filming themselves, and nobody questioned it. I'm glad that we nowadays have schools with zero tolerance policies, um, you know, when it comes to anything like this. Right. Whether you're talking, joking, whatever, it, it's not worth the potential hideous realities that could come out of it. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court in the state of Idaho was a little bit more like me wondering what could have been done and how it could have been done. Especially when the boys are lying when being talked about it. Like, we're just filming a horror movie. It's not that odd for teens to do, although it is an indicator to people like in our community, the true crime community. But the Idaho Supreme Court did dismiss the case because they said that the actions of the killers were not foreseeable. And in honesty, without watching those videos, was it? I don't know. Like, and that's not for us to choose. That was for the Supreme Court in the state of Idaho to choose. And they said it wasn't. So it is unfortunate in hindsight. And it makes me sad because it's definitely not justice for Cassie. But there you go. The school district was not successfully sued. What's also sad is her aunt and uncle moved to Idaho just a year before in like 2005. And there's an article from 2014 that was talking about how difficult it's been for them to sell the house and they just want to sell it. They don't want this hideous memory of coming home on that Sunday and finding her murdered and just all that awful stuff. So um, yeah, I'm not sure because it's been six years that they ended up successfully selling or where they are today. I did try and look into that and couldn't really find any info, but, um, yeah, they were having a tough time with that. And as I do often, I'm going to end this episode with a quote from Anna Stoddard, Cassie's mother. It's hard for all of us every day, but we're trying to go on with our life because that is what she would want us to do. I just wanted to tell part of her story, Anna Stoddard, in regards to the In the Coldest Blood documentary that was on MSNBC in, I believe, 2010. So that's Cassie's story. Until our next episode, you know where to reach us, at the Murder Diaries pod on Instagram, at the Murder Diaries pod at gmail.com, and the Murder Diaries podcast.com. And Natalie wants you to do something. Yep. You know what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you listen. It means a lot to us. And we work really hard on the podcast. So that's one way that you can support us. Yeah. It definitely helps us keep the content coming. Until then, better safe than dead. Bye. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.